Excuse me. I would like to sell you this frozen cherry tart. Would you be interested in it? No, thank you. No? <laughs> okay, that's fine. I recently went out to a street corner in downtown L.A. I would like to sell you this frozen cherry tart. To commit a federal crime. Frozen cherry tarts for sale! Frozen cherry tarts! You're not even curious why I'm selling it? No! <laughs> okay. For educational purposes only. It would be really great to send to your family out of state. I was selling frozen cherry tarts. I would like to sell you this frozen cherry tart. As you can see, it's labeled a frozen cherry tart. But as laid out in... Read this, the Title 21 thing. Got it. Title 21, sections 331... 333 and... 343H1... Of the U.S. Code of Statutes... A.K.A. the laws that Congress passes and detailed in Title 21, Section 152.126A3 of the Code of Federal Regulations. It is a federal crime to sell something that could be involved in interstate commerce that is labeled as a frozen cherry tart if its diameter is more than four inches. And this tart? Will you just measure the diameter of this frozen cherry tart? Um, okay. Eight and three quarter inches. Way too big. So I have now just committed a federal crime. (laughs) But don't worry, I will not, if I get arrested, I will not implicate you. You are not an accessory to this. You had no knowledge of it. As punishment for this frozen cherry tart crime I've just committed, I could go to prison for up to a year or be fined up to $1,000. Why? (laughs) Is this serious right now? I think some regulators have a lot of time on their hands. Welcome to The Uncertain Hour, where the things we fight the most about are the things we know the least about. I'm Chrissy Clark, senior correspondent for Marketplace's Wealth and Poverty team. And this is a show where we dive into the deepest uncertainties of our lives and our economy to make some sense of making it in America. Who gets ahead, who gets left behind, who gets to write the rules, and who gets written off. And as you know, if you've been listening to earlier episodes, rules are actually what this season of the show is all about. Specifically, federal regulations. These collections of fine print that shape every minute of our lives. From mundane things like peanut butter to deadly serious things like opioids. And yet, for most of us, our understanding of federal regulations doesn't go much past buzzwords and talking points. Today, we're going to look at one talking point in particular that's been making the rounds in the last few years. The idea that federal regulations have gotten so out of control, they've become this trap, ensnaring innocent, everyday people and turning them in to criminals. Look at the regulations. Thousands of them. Thousands of them. And you, dear friend, could be a criminal and not even know it. Today, there are so many criminal offenses that no one can know all of the conduct that he must avoid in order to avoid becoming a criminal. We have so many federal criminal laws that no one knows the exact number, meaning a person can be guilty even if she never meant to break the law or had no idea she was doing something illegal. It's an issue that's gained enough traction in the last decade or so, it's earned its own buzzword. It's come to be known as overcriminalization. We're here to discuss overcriminalization, a word that was largely unknown until a few years ago. This is overcriminalization in 60 seconds. The overcriminalization of America is something everyone should be worried about. But where did all these regulations that could be turning us into criminals 
come from? Who's gotten tangled up in them? And how big a deal is all this? What does it mean for our country? That's what we're going to explore in this episode. And just a heads up, the story does include a few swear words. So that frozen cherry tart crime I committed, for educational purposes only, at the top of the show, I wouldn't have known of that crime's existence if it weren't for a guy named Mike Chase. Baby-faced, sometimes framed by a bit of creative facial hair. He's the person behind this popular Twitter account called Crime A Day. It's got almost 50,000 followers, and he's working on a book. The working title? How to Become a Federal Criminal, an Illustrated Handbook for the Aspiring Offender. Just to clarify, that title is ironic. But it's true, Mike Chase has spent the last few years combing through the tens of thousands of pages of laws that Congress has passed over the years, and the more than 100,000 pages of regulations that Congress has tasked federal bureaucrats to write to implement those laws. And he's been trying to create this inventory of every possible federal criminal offense on the books, especially the really obscure ones. He tweets about them, a crime a day. He's already up to nearly 2,000. These are things that, if you engage in them, could lead to a criminal record, either a misdemeanor or in some cases a felony, and might even land you in prison. And the list of these things can be pretty funny. So, uh, for example, it's a federal crime to release a bird into a house in order to scare another bird out of the house. It's a federal crime to get drunk and go to the U.S. Treasury building. It's a federal crime to practice falconry without a falconry license. It's a federal crime to use a falconer's falcon in a movie that's not about falconry. Going through the list of these crimes, they start to sound like some kind of absurdist poetry. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's really, I hope somebody can turn it into something, you know, set to music. And, well, with the magic of audio editing, we can. It's a federal crime to sell a fresh steak with paprika on it. It's a federal crime to ride a moped into Fort Stewart without wearing long trousers. It's a federal crime to sell canned fruit cocktail that's less than 2% cherries. Mike says he suspects many of these crimes go way beyond what elected members of Congress had in mind when they gave federal bureaucrats power to write regulations. I don't think Congress ever thought that there was a problem with under-cherried fruit cocktail. I think that that's just an aggrieved person at the FDA who opened a can of fruit cocktail and said, this is all peaches. <laughs> it's too many peaches. But that's why they passed the regulation that says that it can't be more than 50 percent peaches, too. And now Mike's on a roll again. It's a federal crime to sell Swiss cheese without holes in it. It's a federal crime to whistle on a CB radio. And this one is one of my favorites. It's a federal crime to sell a pig carcass if it has a pronounced sexual odor. And I'm so sorry you have to know this, but there is a loophole in that last regulation. If the sexual odor is anything less than pronounced... You can sell it as food. It's okay. It's all right if, if you're eating that food. <laughs> Unfortunately, what that means is that there is a guy whose job is to go in and go, oh, yeah, that's a sexual odor. But I don't know. I wouldn't say it's pronounced. <laughs> it's the sort of the sommelier of sexual pig odor. <laughs> it takes a certain kind of genius to discover the crimes buried in the pages of obscure federal regulations and see them for the weirdness that they are. 
But behind all this federal crime hilarity, Mike Chase is actually engaged in a deeply serious pursuit. Because, yes, he makes fun of federal crimes by night. But by day... I am primarily a white-collar criminal defense lawyer in Hartford, Connecticut. That is, the guy who spends his spare time making fun of federal crimes spends his working hours at a corporate law firm in Connecticut defending people who are accused of federal crimes. Silly and not-so-silly ones, like mortgage-backed securities fraud. You remember mortgage-backed securities, right? Those investments that got so overvalued they cratered the whole economy 10 years ago? Mike is of the opinion that crimes should be divided into two categories. Each category actually has a Latin name that you learn in law school— First, there are the serious crimes. In Latin, malum in se. Something is malum in se. It's wrong because it's wrong. It's wrong because it's inherently morally wrong. If you commit murder and that's federally prohibited, it's fairly clear to most people that that's wrong. But then Mike says there are all these silly crimes, or in Latin, malum prohibitum. The malum prohibitum. It's wrong because somebody says it's wrong. Mike says part of why he started his after-hours federal crime inventory is because he's had clients accused of that second type of crime, those malum prohibitums. I watched a few of my clients go through the criminal justice system knowing in their heart that they never did anything with ill will, but the law said, technically, you have committed an offense. And that's bound to happen, Mike argues, when there are so many regulatory crimes on the books. When there are 300,000, 800,000, who knows how many hundred thousand crimes, it's very easy to do something that the law forbids without knowing you're doing it. So why do we even have all these silly-sounding crimes in the first place? Of course, it'd be hard for one person to get to the bottom of all the potentially hundreds of thousands of federal regulations with criminal consequences. But I thought it could shed some light on the whole issue to figure out the backstory behind at least one, like a really, really absurd-sounding one. Where did it come from? I decided to start with one of Mike's favorites, Title 21, Section 610 and 676 of the U.S. Code of Statutes, as laid out in Title 9, Sections 311.20 of the Code of Federal Regulations. Which led me to this guy. This is Walter. Walter Jeffries owns Sugar Mountain Farm. Can you set the scene for me a little bit? Where are you right now? We're up on top of a mountain. I can see a lot of snow. I can see the pigs. And Walter is a pig farmer. We raise pasture pigs and we have our own USDA state inspectable butcher shop where we do the butchering. In fact, that's what we're doing today is butchering. Thanks to his pig farming and butchering, it turns out Walter is something of an expert on the sexual odor of pig carcasses, or as it's known in the pig business, boar taint. Boar taint. So I started researching boar taint, I don't know, 15 years ago. So first of all, let's just get this out on the table. As random as a federal regulation about the sexual odor of pig carcasses sounds, apparently the odor is a real issue that people like Walter spend years researching. And explain what, like, I didn't even know there was, I didn't even know sexual odor was a thing when it came to to pigs. So what are they even, what is this regulation even talking about? (laughs) What is the sexual odor of which they refer? Basically, it's pheromones. 
pheromones, chemicals that the male pigs, the boars, emit. To cause the animals to come into heat. Though, for the record, Walter says simply describing the smell as sexual doesn't do it justice. It's more complex than that. Walter thinks the odor is laced with a hint of shit. Shit and locker room. So go grab a guy and have him sweat on an undershirt for you real well, and that's the smell. To me, it smells like shit and armpits. <laughs> In other words, pig B.O. Really strong B.O. that never goes away. Apparently, the stink is really bad in 10 to 20 percent of boars. Now, you might say, okay, sounds gross, but why is the federal government involved? If someone wants to try and sell their stinky pig meat, let them. And customers who don't like it won't buy it. End of story. But here's the thing. You can only smell boar taint when the pig meat is warm. You wouldn't detect it if it's cold. And of course, most of us buy pork when it is cold refrigerated at the store, which all sets up a dynamic that could be tempting for an unscrupulous pig farmer to exploit. Think about it. You're investing a fair amount of money into every pig you raise. About $300. If you're looking at it from the opportunity cost, it's more like 700 to 1000 So if that valuable pig turns out to be one of those stinky, sex-shit-and-armpits kind of pigs, well, you might sell its meat Anyway, since you know that the stink will go unnoticed until some poor, unsuspecting bacon lover gets home, fires up the stove, and things get bad. And let's be real. If enough sexual-smelling pork gets into the pork supply, people are just going to stop buying pork. Which is where Title 21, Sections 610 and 676 of the U.S. Code of Statutes and Title 9, Section 311.20 of the Code of Federal Regulations come in. Here's how it all fits together. Congress wrote a law way back in 1906 that says it's a crime for someone to sell meat that's, quote, unfit for food. The idea was that stuff could hurt consumers or destroy trust in the food market or just give shady food sellers an unfair advantage. Congress also decided that when it comes to what exactly should be considered unfit, we probably needed some ground rules, some specifics. People in Congress aren't food experts, so they asked folks who were at the Department of Agriculture, the USDA, to nail down the details, which they did. Of course, anyone who knows about pigs knows about the possibility of boar taint. And... If you are in a society where that smell is not appealing, and 10% of your boars have that, it's kind of a problem. And that's the origin of the regulation. We've had some version of the rule forbidding the sale of sexual smelling pork for more than 70 years now, though it's changed slightly over time. Originally, it required all carcasses that give off a sexual odor to be condemned, but sometime in the 1960s, that disturbing little adjective, pronounced, popped up, giving a pass to carcasses with less than pronounced odors. Presumably, this had to do with some pork industry lobbyists saying to the USDA, come on, guys, don't make us throw out all the stinky pork. So today we have this. I'll just read a bit from the most current version of the rule. Carcasses of swine which give off a pronounced sexual odor shall be condemned, and the meat of swine carcasses which give off a sexual odor less than pronounced 
may be passed for use in comminuted cooked meat food product. In plain English, that's sausage. And it turns out, yes, there are essentially pig odor sommeliers whose job it is to distinguish between pig carcasses with pronounced sexual odors and ones that are less than pronounced. We know them as the folks from the USDA, meat inspectors and government veterinarians. Walter Jeffries, the pig farmer in Vermont, has seen these folks and their specially trained noses in action at the slaughterhouse. A government inspector checks every single pig right after it's been killed when the meat is still warm. The way that you test it is you go up to the carcass, you smell it. There's actually a rule of thumb written out in a USDA training manual. I checked. If you can smell the odor when you're several inches away from the carcass, the odor is pronounced and you can't sell the pig meat at all. If you can only smell it if you're really close to the meat and have to, quote, search out the odor, it's less than pronounced and into our sausage it may go. At least, that's how the regulation's supposed to work. But of course, rules can be broken. And so Congress decided that violating certain regulations should have consequences. In the case of someone caught selling a pig carcass with a pronounced sexual odor, they could go to prison for up to a year or be fined up to $1,000. It is a crime. And maybe not quite as ridiculous as it first sounds. That's not to say that every federal regulation with criminal consequences makes sense, but there's usually at least a logic to them that goes beyond some aggrieved bureaucrat on a rampage about too many peaches in their canned fruit cocktail. Even that crime about frozen cherry tarts that I demonstrated earlier, there's something to that one, too. In the 1960s, as food was becoming mass-produced and mass-marketed and made with more artificial ingredients— Consumers were complaining that they couldn't tell how many actual cherries, as opposed to sugary fillers, were in their frozen cherry baked goods. The issue got the attention of cherry growers, too. So the government, which was tasked with promoting honesty and fair dealing in the interest of consumers, set up standards for frozen cherry pie and tart sizes and tart-to-cherry ratios so customers would have confidence they were getting plenty of cherries in their tarts. Still, just because a crime is on the books doesn't mean anyone's actually gone to prison for it. No one accosted me on the street when I was trying to sell those oversized frozen cherry tarts. And I asked Walter, the pig farmer, Have you heard of anybody getting in trouble with the law over selling pork with a sexually pronounced odor? Nope. I've never actually ever heard of anybody having an issue with it. It's in the regulations, but I've never heard of it being actually enforced. But what if someone did get prosecuted for one of these ridiculous-sounding crimes? After the break, we hear from one man who did. Okay, so if you're a fan of The Uncertain Hour, you've heard me say that the show is produced by Marketplace. And there are some other great podcasts that Marketplace makes as well. Visit marketplace.org slash podcasts. There you'll find our daily and weekly shows covering business, economics, and tech. Also, in-depth interviews with business leaders in a podcast called Corner Office. 
plus podcasts highlighting our special coverage about economic issues you don't want to miss. That's marketplace.org slash podcasts or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Uncertain Hour. I'm Chrissy Clark. George Norris was going about what he loved one day when federal agents with weapons, automatic weapons, flak jackets, swarmed into his home in a terrifying raid. So there's this story that started making the rounds about eight years ago on TV and online about a guy named George Norris and some orchids. This Texas grandfather found himself facing hard time and heavy fines for selling flowers. Morris had shipped some orchids without the required paperwork. George was sentenced to a year and a half in federal prison. This story about George Norris started showing up in the late 2000s on Fox News, The 700 Club with Pat Robertson. It made its way into The Economist magazine. The story was even highlighted during a hearing in 2009 about overcriminalization held by Congress. Yeah, we testified before Congress, and and uh, we were on uh, two or three television shows, and I've uh, been chapter seven in a book. Cha- <laughs> chapter seven, you know, you know, with a number. <laughs> yeah, page one forty-three. That is George Norris, the man at the center of this story about going to prison for messing up orchid paperwork, and featured in a chapter of the book, One Nation Under Arrest, among others. George was 69 when he got out of prison in 2007. He'd done his time, more than 14 months, in a federal medical facility in Fort Worth, Texas. Yeah, old old guys and crippled up people and anybody that belonged in jail but wasn't a security risk or anything like that. Cells didn't have doors on them, but you were in a cell block all day. What was that like for you? It wasn't a lot of fun. The boredom is what's worse than anything else. You have nothing to do. I uh, would read magazines or we'd play cards and some of us would just sit around and talk. We just found things to do that took up your day and you went to sleep. Then the next day it started all over again. George says the worst part about going to jail wasn't how it affected him. They don't put a person in jail. They put his whole family in. Mm. It affects everybody. You know, my family had to come 250 miles to visit me. They hid it from my grandchildren. They said I was, I was sick and I was off somewhere in a hospital. And even though he's been out of prison for more than a decade now, his time inside still takes its toll. He and his wife split up. He recently moved from his home in Texas to Florida with a felony on his record. I can't go hunting with my grandson. I was just turned down for a voter's card in in Florida, so I can't vote over here. But, hell, I'm 80 years old. I don't have that many more years, and uh, I'm just going to enjoy what I got left, do what I want to do, and try not to step on anybody's toes. Even before I spoke with George... I felt like I kind of already knew his story pretty well. Most of the news reports about him had followed the same contours. A retired Texas grandfather, a hobbyist with a green thumb, went to prison for messing up some paperwork about orchids and how this should be a chilling lesson for us all about overcriminalization in our country. How anyone could accidentally break a federal regulation over something arcane and absurd, in George's case, over the proper permits for orchids, and paid dearly for their mistake. But when I talked to George and learned more about his story, 
there were some things that surprised me about it. It is true that George did get into orchids after he retired from his first career as a salesman for a company that manufactures fencing in Texas. But that's only part of the story. Somebody brought me an orchid. I had a little lean-to greenhouse I raised some tropical plants in, and and a friend of ours, one of our neighbors, got an orchid for Mother's Day, and the flowers fell off, and she brought it to me to see if I could make it live. And uh, it, it went in the back behind some other stuff, and one day I went out there, and there were two great big yellow flowers on it, and I thought, how neat that is. And that became kind of my favorite thing, and I bought a few orchids, and I studied. And then, over the years, George turned his hobby into a business, a really successful business. We were the largest importer of orchids in the, in the United States. This was a very sophisticated orchid business. Todd Agard is a law professor at Villanova University. Before that, he prosecuted environmental crimes at the U.S. Justice Department, including George Norris's crime. By his own account, Norris was making more than $200,000 in a single year uh, around the time that he engaged in this conduct. And so this was someone who, uh, who was making a lot of money. So not exactly a naive hobbyist. As for the part of the story about how the reason George Norris was in prison was because he and a business partner accidentally mislabeled orchids. You have to look at, well, why was he doing that? Well, it was because they were trying to avoid detection for the underlying thing they were doing. And that underlying thing? Well, here's what George Norris actually pled guilty to. That on three occasions in 2002 and 2003, George Norris smuggled endangered orchids from Peru into the United States. That is, George Norris pled guilty, under oath, without a plea deal, to knowingly smuggling endangered orchids from Peru into the U.S. so he could sell them to his customers here. So not exactly just messing up some paperwork. In fact, George admitted that the smuggling involved an elaborate scheme that took advantage of the nuances of how endangered orchids are regulated— Different species of orchids have different restrictions based on how close to extinction that species is. In an effort to protect rare orchids from being poached, U.S. and international law require every individual orchid plant that goes through U.S. customs to have the proper permit to verify the species and that it's been acquired legally. There are fewer regulations on importing orchid species that are less endangered or ones that are grown in a greenhouse rather than the wild. The idea is if I can grow 100 orchids artificially in my nursery, that doesn't really have any impact on whether orchids are surviving in the wild. And so it's far easier to get authorization to trade in artificially propagated orchids. Part of what George pled guilty to doing was having certain orchids he was importing purposely mislabeled and disguised. When federal wildlife officials raided George's home, they found, according to the indictment, correspondence between George and the orchid guy he was working with in Peru talking about their scheme. They talked about how they were going to mislabel the orchids so as to pass them off as orchid species that were less restricted, um, how they were going to pack wild orchid plants in moss and styrofoam to make it appear that they were grown in a nursery as opposed to grown in the wild. Things got even more elaborate from there. Even though George lived in Texas, he and his Peruvian counterpart talked about how they were going to send the orchids through Miami rather than Houston because they thought Miami customs inspectors didn't understand orchids as well and wouldn't notice the disguised flowers. 
And then there was the answer key that George had devised. An answer key with the correct name of the plant so he could tell what they really were as opposed to what they were portrayed on the importing documents. Importing documents and orchid permits sound so bureaucratic. When George Norris went to Capitol Hill to appear before Congress in 2009 during a hearing on this idea of overcriminalization, a Republican congressman introduced him as a man who went to prison for, quote, what amounts to incorrect paperwork. But that paperwork wasn't incorrect because it was missing a semicolon or had an accidental typo. The paperwork was incorrect in order to cover up the fact that he was smuggling endangered orchids from the cloud forests of Peru. Again, this is something George Norris has pled guilty to, under oath, without a plea bargain. Though he's said in interviews since that he only pled guilty because he couldn't afford the kind of expert lawyer he'd have needed to properly fight the charges. So I wanted to ask him about it directly in our interview. A little context for what you're about to hear, as well as some cool orchid trivia. A frag is a kind of orchid that is endangered, with a lot of trade restrictions on it. A maxillaria is a kind of orchid that's not as endangered or restricted, and it kind of looks like a frag. So at one point, were you labeling something that was actually a frag? That's the endangered kind of orchid. As a maxillaria? The less endangered kind. So that you could get it in? Yeah, at one time. And that was illegal? Would have been, yes. So you do agree that you you broke some of those rules. You did try to bring in some species of <laughs> of orchids that don't with don't a different tap name. Don't on eggs. Just ask <laughs> me and I'll tell you. Yeah, I broke some laws. And I'm probably a serious threat to the population. And why was it so important to be bringing these in? Why did you why did you even think, you know, maybe I'll futz on this paperwork a little bit? What was the, what was well, the driving force? They're a popular force? plant. They're a popular plant that a lot of people wanted to buy. And uh, we paid $12 for them, and we turned around and sold them for 24 And if half of them died, you didn't make any money on that shipment at all. So it wasn't, it wasn't like we were making thousands and thousands of dollars. Uh, they were... A commonly priced plant, and uh, people wanted them. So we brought them in and, and sold them. George told me that, in his opinion, some of the orchids that he'd gotten in trouble for shipping shouldn't have been classified as endangered in the first place. You know, you'll see, see so many of them. There's probably, on one hillside, maybe 100,000 of them. So they can't, can't very well be endangered. We, we followed the laws wherever they made sense. There were, there were a lot of dumb regulations that were made with no regard to what it took to protect the plants or anything like that. And the federal government just doesn't belong in the orchid business. They have 44,000 laws. But George did admit to breaking some of those laws. And so I asked him, why shouldn't you be punished for that? Why shouldn't you go to jail for doing that? Well... <laughs> You put somebody in jail for flowers? I mean, it. sure, I'd have paid a fine or I'd have done probation, but do you put somebody in, in, in prison for flowers who's no threat to anybody, not a drug user or seller? 
I didn't do anything to hurt anybody. Look, you never want to see somebody suffer. That's former Justice Department attorney Todd Agard again, one of the people who worked on the orchid smuggling case that sent George Norris to prison. And it's not just his consequences, right? It's his family who has suffered as a result. Uh, I'm sure other people have, have suffered consequences as well. And so I think that is something for all of us to be sorry about. But that doesn't mean that it was wrong for him to have that consequence. Um, and it doesn't mean that he, he didn't deserve it. And I think, you know, some people, even people who care about wildlife and orchids, might hear that, especially when it is an older man and think really going to like I I could see how maybe he violated this regulation and it wasn't the best thing to do but to spend like a year and a half in prison that seems harsh what do you is it <laughs> what how do you feel just on a on a human level even setting aside your, your the role you were in as the, as a lawyer Right, right, right. And certainly my role as a lawyer was to represent the the government's interest, uh, which is not necessarily how I'd feel about about a particular case. But I think it's important in thinking about this. What I keep being left with, with with this case is it is the very unfortunate aspect of our criminal justice system that it comes into play when something terrible has happened. I am convinced looking at the documents in this case that something terrible had happened when someone goes to that length to undermine an international system designed to protect rare species, takes it upon themselves to decide that the law should not apply to them. I am comfortable, even as uh, as terrible as I think it, it is, I am comfortable with there being rather a severe sanction for that kind of conduct. As Todd sees it, and it's a view that was shared by the federal government he was representing as a DOJ lawyer in the second Bush administration, In their view, George Norris did do harm when he repeatedly smuggled endangered orchids into the U.S. to sell and made false claims to U.S. customs officials about what he was doing. Part of the harm, Agard says, was to the survival of an orchid species that a group of international scientists have deemed close to extinction. But Agard says the harm of George Norris's actions goes beyond orchids. There is independently a harm when people lie to the government about what they're doing. That really undermines our entire system of trust on which we we rest our government. And you see this in other countries, right, where there's not a norm of complying with the law, how that can really undermine all sorts of aspects of that society. Well, I think here uh, we have a pretty strong norm of following the law. And when someone intentionally steps outside of it, takes it upon themselves to decide that they shouldn't be required to comply with the law just because they want to make some money or because they think, oh, I I just like orchids or whatever. There's a moral consequence to that that deserves to be punished in some way under the criminal law. And then there's that idea that's been repeated in so many of the stories about George Norris over the years that his crimes really only amounted to a paperwork violation. That really bugs Todd. People tend to fixate on, oh, it was just a paperwork violation. It was just a reporting violation. Paperwork, Todd says, is how you hold businesses accountable to the law and to the public. Without it, he says things fall apart. Unless we are going to have EPA 
OSHA, Department of Labor inspectors in every employer, every factory, every facility, every day, constantly looking over the shoulders of industry, which would impose all sorts of burdens. We largely rely on people accurately reporting their conduct to the government. And so when somebody tries to subvert the entire system by misrepresenting something to the government, you have to have significant sanctions that treat these so-called paperwork and reporting violations every bit as significantly as violating the environmental law by polluting too much, endangering your workers, or bringing in the, uh, the rare plant. Like, say, dozens of rare Peruvian orchids that a group of international experts have concluded are threatened with extinction. Talking to Todd, the former DOJ lawyer, and George, the convicted orchid smuggler, made my head hurt. They saw the world so differently, and each time I stepped from one world into the other, it was hard to find any common ground to stand on. For Todd, part of what made George's crime so troubling is that it undermined the trust we have in the government. For George, the government wasn't something to be trusted. Just never trust the federal government. I hate to say that about my, my, my government, but this isn't the country I grew up in. It's not, it doesn't resemble it in any way. I don't trust our government. I, I don't think they're going in the right direction. I voted for Trump, but I don't think he's going to be all that effective. I wish he would, but uh, I'm just uh, real skeptical. Government's made me that way. There's a book out called Three Felonies a Day. And the, the, the gist of the book is just about everybody breaks a law several times a day that they don't even know was a law. But in this case, you, you did know that you were breaking some of these rules. You just thought they were not sensible rules. Is that right? Yes. And I guess, you know, some, someone might counter to that. Well, if everybody just kind of picks and chooses the rules that they think make sense and they follow the ones they think make sense and don't follow the ones they don't, that could kind of undermine society. You know, that could kind of lead to chaos. You really, you really think that would undermine society? Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a thought anyway. Wherever you come down on George Norris's case, whether you think his punishment fit his crime or not, the fact is that for many folks, George Norris has become a poster child for overcriminalization, a victim, plain and simple, an example of government power run amok, sending someone to prison for violating another ridiculous regulation. In fact, that's how I first heard about George Norris's story from Mike Chase. Remember the white-collar criminal defense lawyer who has that list of crazy-sounding federal crimes, who said those crimes could be a potential trap for people? When there are 300,000, 800,000, who knows how many hundred thousand crimes, it's very easy to do something that the law forbids without knowing you're doing it. Well, for Mike Chase, George Norris is a good example of someone who fell into that trap. Here's how Mike described the case. It was not that long ago. There was a gentleman in Texas. He's a 66-year-old guy. He was a hobbyist, and he was selling orchids. The feds raided his home and said he didn't maintain the appropriate documentation for the imported orchids, and he went to prison for that, for failing to have appropriate documentation of orchids. Of course, we know now that's not the full story. George was actually intentionally smuggling rare orchids, but that's how Mike tells it. And one of the driving forces behind this particular interpretation of George Norris's story 
errors and all. One of the reasons this version has become something of a meme? The answer involves a pair of brothers from Wichita, Kansas, with names you'll probably recognize, Charles and David Koch, two of the richest men in America and principal owners of Koch Industries, one of the largest privately owned corporations in the country, with an annual revenue of around $100 billion. I should note, Koch Industries has at times bought underwriting ads on Marketplace, the media organization where I work. Underwriters have no influence on our journalism. In my research on the George Norris Orchid case, I found these videos put out a few years ago by the Charles Koch Institute, a free market think tank founded by Charles Koch. Here are a few clips from the videos. The way they frame the issue will probably sound familiar to you by now. We have so many federal criminal laws that no one knows the exact number. A person can be guilty even if she never meant to break the law or had no idea she was doing something illegal. People have faced large fines and even prison time for things like mislabeling orchids. The issue, as it's framed in these videos, is all about the average citizen, the little guy. But it also happens to be a useful defense for wealthy corporations like the ones the Koch brothers own. More about that after we take a short break. Hey, wonderful Uncertain Hour listeners. As we put together future episodes, we want to know what questions you have about federal regulations, specifically about financial regulations and Dodd-Frank. You know, that law Congress passed on the heels of the financial crisis? What do you wonder about it? What confuses you? Send us your financial regulatory wonderings, and they may even inspire an upcoming episode. You can email us. Our address is uncertainhour at marketplace.org or tweet us at uncertainhour. So we've been talking about this idea that America has all these federal rules and regulations, sometimes really absurd-sounding ones, with criminal consequences, and how that might affect our country and everyday Americans. And this is an idea that the senior vice president and general counsel of Koch Industries could seemingly talk all day about. His name is Mark Holden. In our hour-long conversation, he brought up a lot of things about what he sees as wrong with our criminal justice system. And there were a couple points that he returned to again and again. There's the one about the large but mysterious number of federal criminal regulations in our country. We have regulations out there estimated somewhere around 300,000 or more federal criminal regulations. 300,000 or more federal criminal regulations exist. We don't know for sure. You look at what is out there in the 300,000-plus federal criminal regulations, and do we need them anymore? And then there's the point Mark makes about how a lot of these federal regulations are criminalizing things that just don't seem like they should be illegal. You have these issues that wouldn't necessarily lead one to believe they're breaking the law, but have criminal implications. Not acts that people would necessarily understand By doing it, it's something illegal. But they've been made a crime because of regulations. No one would ever have any idea that would be illegal or a problem. But they become issues that you can end up getting a criminal record or being arrested and charged, and it can ruin your life. 
Mark says he's seen the ruin that can come after an arrest and a criminal conviction with his own eyes. He grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, and in college, he says he worked for a while as a guard at the county jail. And I saw firsthand, this is in the early 80s at the start of the war on drugs, a lot of people who got caught up in the system who really I went to school with, I grew up with, I went to the same churches and lost track of them junior high and high school because they dropped out of school, became drug addicts, and then did, th- then did the things that drug addicts do. And these individuals did some things they shouldn't have done, but they never hurt anybody but themselves, at least the ones I'm familiar with, and they ended up with their lives ruined. And even back then, as a young prison guard, Mark says it didn't make sense to him. To lock people up who haven't hurt anybody just because they used drugs or did drugs, and I'm not a fan of illegal drugs, but um, it seemed like a, a huge overreach. That overreach, as Mark describes it, is something he and his bosses, the Koch brothers, have put considerable time and money into trying to pull back. Some of their focus has been on the many ways the system makes it hard for low-level drug offenders to rebuild their lives. The Kochs have been pushing to shorten mandatory minimum sentences. They've pushed to make it easier for ex-felons to find jobs. But the government overreach that Mark says he sees in the war on drugs— He says he and his bosses see a similar problem in the way the government has attached criminal consequences with laws and regulations to other activities beyond drugs that also don't involve any direct physical violence. Mark keeps a mental list of examples of this. Releasing balloons into a wildlife refuge. There was a guy that was charged with, I think it was Clean Air or Clean Water Act uh, violations because he let go a bunch of balloons after he uh, had become engaged to his fiancée digging for arrowheads on federal land. They were looking for arrowheads. They they were prosecuted. And, yes, importing mislabeled orchids. Well, this was the guy who was uh, just uh, into flowers and was importing orchids and then reselling them and had no idea there was a federal regulation on that um, and ended up being prosecuted. Of course, like I said, that's not really what happened. As George Norris told me, he did know about the federal regulations he was breaking, the disguised orchids, the falsified customs documents, but that's how Mark described it to me. And in fact, it was doing research on the George Norris orchid case that had actually made me want to talk to Mark Holden and the company he represents, Coke Industries, in the first place. When I started looking into the Orchid case and its rise to fame as a poster child in the overcriminalization movement, I kept running across the Koch's name. There were those references to it in the videos from the Charles Koch Institute that I played earlier. A person can be guilty even if she never meant to break the law or had no idea she was doing something illegal. People have faced large fines and even prison time for things like mislabeling orchids. Again, not the full story, but Koch's connection to this Orchid story went beyond just that video clip. Let me explain. A lot of the early references to the Orchid case and interviews with George Norris that I came across were made by free market think tanks and conservative advocacy groups, the Heritage Foundation, the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, something called the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which has an initiative called Right on Crime. When I started looking into these groups, I found that they'd each received funding, each at least in the six figures, from Koch Industries, or one of the foundations connected to the Koch brothers. Of course, it's not surprising that conservative activists like the Koch brothers would give money to conservative groups. But then I started noticing that the conservative Kochs were donating to at least one pretty liberal group, too, the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, 
A thing this liberal group had in common with the conservative ones? They all expressed public outrage at the George Norris Orchid paperwork case and pointed to it as evidence of something more broadly wrong with our criminal justice system. After looking at all these groups that had received donations from Coke, I was curious, why was Coke Industries funding so many groups rallying to the defense of a guy charged with a silly-sounding crime? What did a multi-billion dollar corporation with vast holdings from oil refineries to paper mills to lycra factories see in this cause? Turns out, Coke Industries and its subsidiaries have had their own run-ins with the federal justice system. They've been charged with dozens of federal crimes, and many of those charges involved a Coke-owned oil refinery in Corpus Christi, Texas, and a chemical known to cause cancer, particularly leukemia, a chemical called benzene. B-E-N-Z-E-N-E. I've seen the word benzene my whole life. I, I think I learned to spell that word like I, when I was like five or six from standing at the bus stop seeing the signs. That's Tammy Foster, a resident of Corpus Christi. She's 45, grain hair and a messy bun. She grew up in a part of Corpus known as Refinery Row. It's a 10-mile strip of land full of chemical plants and refineries owned by companies including Sitgo and Valero, as well as two refineries that the Koch brothers own. And in many cases, these industrial facilities butt right up against residential neighborhoods, racially diverse, low-income neighborhoods. Where Tammy grew up, signs marked the spots where refinery pipelines were buried, pipelines often filled with hazardous chemicals. Like the, pipe, the little markers for the pipelines? Like, at the end of the street, there's probably 15 or 20 pipelines, and I think a couple of them have some form of benzene, like Tetra something benzene, or, but there's always, I've seen the word benzene my whole life. Tammy knows more about benzene than just how to spell it. She knows what it smells like when it's released into the air, a mix of antifreeze and syrup, she says. And then there's the worst thing she knows. I know that benzene causes leukemia and it's a cancer-causing agent, and it's prevalent on Refinery Row. Almost every facility has some form of benzene. Tammy's whole life has been intimately entwined with all these facilities on Refinery Row. She grew up with one almost literally in her backyard. Tammy and most of her family have all worked at a refinery at some point, too, depended on the refineries for their livelihood. And since she was a teenager, Tammy has been speaking out against the impact pollution from all these refineries and chemical plants has had on her community. What has it been like living so close to those refineries and all the years that you lived there? How did how has that affected your life and your neighbors' lives? Um, we've had kids get leukemia. We've had people die early from cancer. Little kids in the summer get mystery rashes that they don't know where they come from. The doctor's just, you know, here, here's a Band-Aid, put some cortisone on it, and it'll go away. They don't really know what it is. I've had family members die of cancer, four in the past year. Four members of your family? Yeah. It's not like any single cancer case can be directly linked to the benzene or any other chemical released from a particular refinery. But it's statistically certain some people in these neighborhoods will be more likely to get cancer because of the higher exposure they have to these chemicals living so close to these plants. Tammy's used to living in a place where blame and responsibility, actions and consequences are blurry. I mean, we, we have the biggest, the largest cluster of oil refineries in, in the nation is on Refinery Road. There's six of them. So you can't pinpoint who did what to who. You just know it's there in the air. 
And that's the thing about environmental pollution. It's impossible to draw clear lines of cause and effect between what an industrial facility puts out into the community and who gets affected. But the thing that can be done is to carefully limit and monitor how much of any given hazardous chemical is being put out into the community, to carefully regulate it. That's what federal regulations that implement the Clean Air Act and other environmental laws are all about. And when companies don't follow those regulations, they can be charged with federal crimes. That's happened on a few different occasions with companies that own refineries on Refinery Row in Corpus Christi. But when it happened to Coke Industries in September of 2000 over the issue of how much benzene one of their refineries had released, it launched Coke on a mission they're still pursuing today. That led us to start working back in, oh, it's gosh, been 12 years now on the criminal justice movement, more than 12 years, I guess, uh, on criminal justice reform. That's Mark Holden again, senior vice president and general counsel for Coke Industries. Here's specifically what that case that launched them into criminal justice reform was about. In 2000, Coke Industries, its subsidiary Coke Petroleum Group, and four employees were charged with 97 counts of federal crimes connected to one of Coke's oil refineries in Corpus Christi. The case involved a whistleblower who alleged that Coke Petroleum Group had released benzene, that chemical known to cause cancer, out into the community in amounts more than 15 times above federal limits, and that Coke then lied to regulators about it. As punishment for these charges, the employees faced up to 35 years in prison and fines of a million dollars or more. The corporations, Coke Industries and its subsidiary, Coke Petroleum Group, faced fines up to $48.5 million, about a quarter of what they'd earned in profits the year of the alleged violations. Then, in 2001, Coke and its subsidiary negotiated a settlement of the case— the federal government dropped all the charges against individual employees. Coke Petroleum Group pled guilty to one count in violation of the Clean Air Act. And what Coke Petroleum Group specifically admitted to, it's going to sound really technical and legalistic, but bear with me. It admitted to falsifying documents to cover up the fact that it wasn't properly controlling the benzene emissions from the plant— Specifically, it admitted to disconnecting a device that controlled benzene pollution and instead, according to the federal indictment, to releasing benzene vapors directly into the atmosphere. Coke Petroleum Group also admitted that it failed to measure the level of benzene being released into liquid waste streams it was treating. From a certain angle, this could all sound like nothing more than a paperwork violation. But on the paperwork in question, Coke Petroleum Group lied in order to conceal actual things its employees were doing in the real world. Here's how Mark Holden of Coke characterizes it. Our company pled guilty to the original false statement, that false report, just to get rid of the whole situation. As punishment, Coke Petroleum paid a $10 million fine and another $10 million in environmental cleanup. No one went to prison. The consequences for Coke were way less severe than they could have been under the initial charges. But even so, here's how Mark says everyone at Coke sees that episode now. It was um, a huge, huge, grave miscarriage of justice, the whole prosecution. So that process really opened our eyes to many things. After it was done, we did an internal look at how we handled 
our compliance programs, and we had done an okay job, a good job, but we, we made them much more robust. And we also made sure that we were interacting with regulators in a more proactive way and not just showing up when we had an issue. Uh, that was the internal look. And then the external look was we were challenged by Charles Koch and others in our company uh, just looking at, at the criminal justice system. Had it worked like we thought it should work? Did we think it was fair? Did we think it was just? And the answer was no. And we saw with all our resources what had happened to us. And we knew that out there, there must be a lot of other people, small business owners, individuals, people in the streets, whoever it was, you know, poor people who get swept up in the system who don't have resources. Mark says there are many parts of the case that frustrated him and his bosses. One of them was the idea that a lot of the stuff that happened was considered a crime in the first place. Our employees discovered that someone had uh, filed a false report uh, under the benzene air regulations. Once they found out about the report, they went, they self-reported, they they, uh, got rid of the person who filed the false report. They reported to the agency what had happened. They they told them that we were out of compliance and we were going to get back in compliance. Basically, Mark says, aside from this one rogue employee, no one else meant to break the rules. They had not done anything criminally wrong in our estimation at all. They had tried to fix a bad situation. But despite what Mark says now about not doing anything criminally wrong, the company did plead guilty to a criminal charge, to covering up the fact that someone at the refinery had disconnected a system meant to control the emissions of a cancer-causing chemical, benzene, and to concealing how much benzene the refinery had in its waste stream, and to signing documents that said they were following federal benzene regulations when they were not. Do you think... Was something done wrong on the part of Coke Industries? What Did you guys make a mistake and, and did that potentially hurt the community that um, was living around the, the refinery? I'd, I'd say no. The, the, the mistake that was made, there was a false statement made that we had the wrong person in the wrong role, obviously, and we took care of that and corrected it. But there, uh, there were emission, there were emissions. Uh, benzene is a is a carcinogenic yeah. uh, there, chemical. There's no evidence correct? that happened. Is my point? You're saying oh, there's is, no absolutely. You're saying there's, there's no, no evidence, evidence that there was actually any any uh, leaks going beyond the the federal limits. Correct. There's no evidence of that. That was my point. But you pled and guilty were, to were, you pled guilty to to leaking chemicals. Is that correct? No, we pled guilty to a false statement. We went around and around like this for a while. Mark saying, all we pled guilty to was a false statement. Me saying, but wasn't the statement false because you were saying you'd complied with the limits on benzene emissions when actually you had not because you dismantled the emission control device? At which point Mark said this. Well, the numbers were made up, right? And so we don't know if we were in compliance or not. That's the thing about filing false paperwork. If the only real evidence of whether you're violating the limits on benzene pollution is your own report, and you made up the numbers on that report, there's conveniently no real evidence. But the bottom line for Mark is that, more generally, the things that happened in Coke's refinery in Corpus Christi shouldn't be seen as a crime. Maybe some of the groups on the left, maybe for whatever reason they want to see people go to prison um, who have issues with pollution or what have you, but... You know, we have in our, in our society, we have a system. We have civil, we have regulatory, and we have criminal. We need to stop overusing criminal sanctions. 
And that's part of the broader deregulation campaign Mark Holden and the Koch brothers have been pushing for many years. A thing that, in their eyes, connects their own experience as a multi-billion dollar corporation to low-level drug offenders, as well as to orchid, arrowhead, and balloon-releasing offenders. Mark and his bosses think there should be fewer laws, and especially regulations, with criminal consequences attached to them. Period. So people don't go to prison because they moved an arrowhead or even get charged with a crime, or people set off balloons. But when David Ullman hears this, these warnings about the dangers of criminal sentences coming from the mouth of the senior vice president and general counsel of Coke Industries, he thinks twice. Let's be clear. For corporate America, you're going to be a lot more reluctant to put public health and the environment at risk if you might go to jail. David is a professor at the University of Michigan's law school, and he was chief of the environmental crime section at the U.S. Justice Department during the case against the Coke refinery in Corpus Christi. He says he's all for locking fewer people up in the war on drugs, which he says has done real damage to communities, especially poor communities of color. But he says low-level, nonviolent drug offenders should not be confused with corporations who might violate public health and safety regulations. In those cases, he says, criminal consequences are an essential tool. It's one thing if you know that violations of the law might result in a penalty. You might take your chances that, you know, they might catch me, they might not catch me, but if they do, the worst thing that's going to happen is I'm going to pay a fine. It's another thing entirely if your violation of the law might result in you going to jail. So I think we want criminal enforcement to be available for the most egregious violations because these laws are protecting all of us. What the Kochs are doing is pushing for changes that would make it harder to criminally enforce violations of environmental and public health regulations, David says. And they're putting their considerable lobbying power behind that push. And as for some of Koch's broader work around criminal justice reform, David suspects ulterior motives. When corporate America stands behind the bipartisan idea that we shouldn't be locking up 18 to 26-year-old Americans who lack sufficient economic opportunity and and commit nonviolent drug offenses for the better part of their adult lives, uh, you know, I'm right there with them. Uh, But when, when, when some in corporate America try and exploit the problem of what we're what we've done in the war on drugs as a way to try and make it more difficult to hold corporations and corporate officials accountable for corporate crime that's wrong in my view and, and actually deeply cynical like you commit a crime and and so you want to make sure you could never be prosecuted again you're that vindictive I asked David about that thing that Mark Holden of Coke Industries had said, that in his view of the Corpus Christi benzene case, the company was just trying to fix the mistakes of one rogue employee. Coke said the company acknowledged the problems to Texas officials in 1995, fixed them within months, and then was in compliance on the benzene issue for more than four years afterwards. What what do you say to that? You know, um, I, I think... Coke did eventually come into compliance, but, you know, if you commit a crime and somebody reports it to the police, um, the fact that you get your act straight going forward is a good thing uh, and something which you should get credit for at sentencing, and they did. 
uh, but it doesn't relieve you of your responsibility for the crime. And remember those two Latin phrases that Mike Chase, the crime a day guy, taught me? Malum in se and malum prohibitum? The malums, as my wife calls them. <laughs> yes. Those serious crimes that are obviously wrong because they're inherently morally wrong. And those silly sounding crimes that are just wrong because there's a rule someone made saying they're wrong. In the real world, actually, outside of the law school classroom and Latin class, you know, the world doesn't break out into malum and say and malum prohibitum. I mean, you know, under the environmental laws, you know, dumping hazardous waste was completely lawful until 1976 when Congress made it a crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we had hazardous waste sites across America badly contaminating our communities. So at the, I suppose at the moment Congress made it a crime, it was malum prohibitum. That is something that's wrong because of a rule saying it's wrong. Because it had always been lawful before. But, I mean, it seems to me to be inherently wrongful to dump a bunch of hazardous waste or bury hazardous waste and, and, and contaminate people's homes and drinking water supplies. David tells me what we think of as inherently right and wrong— It's partly shaped by the worlds we grew up in, the rules we grew up with. And of course, those rules are shaped by the laws our elected officials pass and the regulations they ask government agencies to write to implement those laws. Those things help guide our moral compass. And depending on how the rules change, that compass can change over time. Like, if people start to see corporate crimes, like the one Coke pled guilty to at their oil refinery, as just another case of being punished for a ridiculous-sounding, hard-to-keep-track-of government rule, well, that could change the whole landscape for a company like Coke Industries. And it could also change the landscape for a person like Tammy Foster, that woman who grew up on Refinery Row. Tammy remembers that day in 2001 when Coke Petroleum Group made headlines for falsifying reports to the government about how they were controlling the benzene at their plant. Front page of the newspaper. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember what it said? Um, Coke pleads guilty. I think that's the very first headline I, that I clearly remember. And do you, And what went through your mind as you were reading that? How many kids are going to get sick because of what they've done? Tammy knows Coke isn't the only company in Corpus Christi that's violated federal benzene regulations or regulations of other chemicals with known health risks. But she's used to seeing how relatively harmless-sounding paperwork violations can lead to real risks that might affect her and her neighbor's health. And in Tammy's opinion, after Coke Petroleum pled guilty to falsifying documents and covering up the fact that a device controlling benzene emissions had been disconnected... Somebody should have went to jail. The person up there falsifying the documents and signing off on them, they should all went to jail on criminal charges. If you're driving down the road and you're venting black smoke out the back of your car, they're going to put you in jail if you don't pay the ticket. So why shouldn't they have to get the same treatment? And then she asked me. Has anybody convicted of an environmental crime been to jail? We hear a lot of sound bites questioning a system that could send an innocent citizen to prison for some ridiculous-sounding crime. Selling pork with a sexual odor, mislabeling orchids, selling oversized frozen cherry tarts. But there are also a lot of Americans like Tammy asking a different question. After a chemical leak or a financial crisis, who is being punished for this? No one went to jail connected to that Coke benzene case in Corpus Christi that was prosecuted in the early 2000s. But there is research from the University of Michigan that looked at pollution crimes investigated by the EPA between 2005 and 2014. 
there were 980 people prosecuted in that time. More than 342 were sentenced to jail, so about a third. The average sentence was about 22 months. If Coke is successful in their campaign to decriminalize many of the regulations on the books with criminal consequences, sending someone to prison for violating environmental and other kinds of white-collar regulations would only get harder. That's it for this episode of The Uncertain Hour. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back in a couple weeks with more stories about the things we fight a lot about but know just a little about. This episode of The Uncertain Hour was reported by me and produced by Maria Hollenhorst, Lyra Smith, Tommy Andres, Caitlin Esch, and Tony Wagner. Engineering by Jake Gorski and Emma Erdbrink. The episode was edited by senior editor Nancy Fargali. Satara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand at Marketplace. Deborah Clark is the senior vice president and general manager. Special thanks this week to Annie Reese, Davis Land, and Raymond Troncoso. Please let us know what you think of our show. Our Twitter account is at UncertainHour. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us continue the work we do. 